You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. Just past midnight on March 24th, the supertanker Exxon Valdez crashed into a reef off the coast of southern Alaska. One of America's most magnificent waterways is blackened and befouled tonight by the biggest oil spill in American history. 240,000 barrels, 11 million gallons of Alaskan crude oil escaped from the huge vessel. Exxon Valdez oil spill. On the evening of March 23, 1989, the supertanker Exxon Valdez left Valdez, Alaska with 53 million gallons of Prudhoe Bay crude oil on board, colliding into the well-known navigational hazard of Bly Reef in Alaska's pristine Prince William Sound. When the ship's hull was pierced, 11 million gallons of crude oil poured into the water, eventually spreading out over 1,300 miles of coastline. Investigators soon discovered that the ship's captain, Joseph Hazelwood, had been drinking at the time of the collision, passing the helm to an unlicensed third mate who unwittingly caused the worst oil spill in U.S. history until the Deepwater Horizon oil spill of 2010. In the months that followed, Exxon employees, federal responders, and more than 11,000 Alaskan residents worked to clean up the spill, skimming oil from surface waters while spraying oil dispersant chemicals on crude-laden beaches. But not before wildlife paid a heavy toll for the man-made destruction of their ecosystem, eventually killing an estimated 250,000 seabirds, 3,000 otters, 300 seals, 250 bald eagles, and 22 killer whales. The oil spill also collapsed the salmon and herring fisheries in Prince William Sound, bankrupting fishermen and local economies, with losses estimated at $2.8 billion. To this day, stocks of herring have never fully recovered, while shoreline stocks of mussels, barnacles, and various seaweeds took four years to return to pre-disaster levels. After the Exxon Valdez oil spill, Congress and President George H.W. Bush passed the Oil Pollution Act of 1990, which increased penalties for oil companies and shippers responsible for oil spills, while mandating that all oil tankers operating in American waters be double-hauled which proponents believe could have stopped the disaster of the single-hulled Valdez tanker. As for the fate of the Exxon Valdez, after the supertanker was repaired, the ship was sold and renamed four times before being sold for scrap to an Indian company in 2012, making the Exxon Valdez oil spill one of the most destructive and costly man-made disasters 
in the history of maritime trade. And there you have it, the Exxon Valdez oil spill, today on The Daily Dose. Get your nerd on with The Daily Dose. And if you enjoyed today's episode, share the link with a friend or colleague so that they too can learn something new every day. Welcome to our show, The Leadership of George Bush. And we're looking back now, as, you can, as you've already can tell, the Exxon Valdez disaster that uh, was uh, a, a horrific environmental disaster when an oil tanker hit a reef uh, in Alaska. And I thought before we get started on the Bush, uh, uh, the story that we need, I need to address my own votes on, on such subjects uh, as oil many, many years after this. And when I was on the Smyrtle Beach City Council in 2014, I was the lone city council member uh, probably, I think there were three city council people down in Charleston that supported offshore drilling off the coast of South Carolina. And uh, and it was a very controversial issue. A lot of folks here in Myrtle Beach will remember it. Uh, and I thought I would just include a, a few moments of my remarks uh, on the day that we cast the vote. It was a six-to-one vote uh, by the city council in Myrtle Beach uh, for a resolution that would be uh, in opposition to offshore drilling. I was in favor of it. The thing that, of course, that makes very different than what happened in the Valdez, Alaska uh, story is, of course, that's a tanker that hit a reef that, that leaked uh, millions of gallons, about 11 million gallons worth of oil out into the to the bay. Whereas what we were talking about doing was drilling for natural gas. There's a belief that off the coast of South Carolina, really off the coast of Georgetown, South Carolina, which is a neighboring community from Myrtle Beach, uh, that we have the largest pocket of natural gas, 30 trillion cubic feet is what is believed to be there. And that's a different thing, as I'll explain uh, in my remarks, than oil. But I did think before we started down the road of the Exxon Valdez that, that, uh, that, you know, I needed to kind of introduce that because while not all the viewers of uh, uh, Randall Wallace Presents podcast uh, are in the Myrtle Beach area, enough of them are that uh, it, I, I felt like we probably ought to do that part before we start talking about the disaster and of the Bush years. So here I am talking about the vote on the Myrtle Beach City Council in 2014 on offshore drilling. Tuxedo ball and felt like a pair of brown shoes. <laughs> you know how I feel tonight. And I, I used to complain about uh, the fact that I didn't have any followers on my Randall Wallace Myrtle Beach City Councilman Facebook page, but the last two weeks have fixed that, thanks to uh, <laughs> so many of you folks. Um, <laughs> let me just say that I do respect the feelings of so many of the folks here about uh, what they perceive to be a huge fear, and, and my colleagues' fear. Um, of what could happen if you had a national a natural disaster involving oil um, off our coast. I have been on a board of uh, the Energy, Environment, and Natural Resources Committee for about 11 years on the National League of Cities. Um, they are generally more involved with alternative energy sources, the clean energy things like solar and wind. And uh, uh, we wrote the book on. Uh, <laughs> Uh, gosh, I've lost, I've lost my train of thought, but on, on a lot of the stuff, that resiliency, um, which has to do with climate change and all that kind of stuff, and, and a community's ability to adapt to it. So um, I've heard a lot of, of uh, your feelings about 
the environment, and I share them. I, I, I am, a, I think, an animal lover and someone who uh, was involved with the arms club when I was in high school, which was both dogs and cats, but I love sea turtles and animals, mammals, and all that, too. So don't think that I'm anti-environment. But uh, during that time, what I have studied and learned over the, over the period of what they think, based on the old technology that they had, is that we are looking at a negligible amount of oil, but I am not going to lie to you and tell you that you don't have to drill for both. You may have to do that. But they think we have 30 trillion cubic feet of natural gas off our coast. That is a totally different thing than a potential oil spill. Uh, the possibilities, I, I did not interrupt anybody, so let me, uh, let me finish. Um, the potential that that could have, depending on what's there, would be, I think, huge. Um, we don't know because there hasn't been any testing done, I think, in probably 25 or 30 years using old technology. What they have today, which is what they're actually trying to do, which is seismic testing, would identify where potential pockets of natural gas are out there, or oil for that matter, if it's there. As I've said, I, the experts that I've talked to seem to think that that's a negligible amount of oil at best. But this is natural gas that we're talking about. So 35,000 higher paying jobs that could pay 50 to 100 or more thousands of dollars. And diversify the economy. I still feel that the industry does not have the opportunity that so many of you have had to talk to our council members, though they all did meet individually with some of them this week. But that is my understanding of it. You could have 35,000 jobs here by 2035, um, all making higher income. In an in a, in a industry that is not uh, prone to the kind of accidents that I think the oil part of this would be. Having said that, um, you know, I came back here in 1995. I was not a doctor. I was not a lawyer. I was not the son of privilege. I know what it's like to struggle. When I was a kid here, I worked at the Rice Planters restaurant, and I remember having shoes with holes in them while I washed dishes and fried seafood and had to wring my socks out. My mother was a school teacher making $13,000 a year. She had a $490 house payment on the townhouse that I grew up in that I still have. With, it was my mother, my dad, my brother, my dog, me, and my uncle living in that house. So I know what it's like to struggle and be a working person. When I ran for this office, which is what I came, I came back to, to Myrtle Beach to be a part of this community to try to do something about, and I had a list of 13 things. I remember sitting in Tom Lee's office and going down that list with him, and one of them was diversifying the economy, just like Mike Chestnut talked about. I think this is the best opportunity, maybe not from Myrtle Beach, which is who we represent, but for Georgetown County in a port that is uh, Georgetown County that is a port operating at 10%. For Georgetown County has a steel mill that's closing. This is a huge opportunity for them. For rural Horry County bringing higher paying jobs here, this is a big opportunity for them. And I think the positives haven't been flushed out. And I, I would have liked to have had that energy for them. I would love to have had the folks, uh, Bill Crowther, who's here today. Um, the opportunity to speak on uh, on behalf of the industry and about the positives of it and also to express that this we're talking about is potentially natural gas. Having said that, James Frazier gave me some advice many, many years ago. He said, if you want to have a long career in politics, always vote your conscience. Don't take it personally and don't fight the same old battles over and over again. And I can see that I am not going to win this one. With that, I'm going to see the bill and vote. Any further discussion, Cass?
with that, you know, I want to be upfront with this show and anything that we do to say, hey, this was my position, and 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 I have always been a traditional supporter of the oil industry. Uh, when I ran for Congress, I had an energy plan that involved, uh, you know, drilling for oil in Anwar, Alaska, and uh, natural gas and a, a full scale energy production. Uh, plan that included not only the fo- the traditional fossil fuels that have become the brunt of so much because of the the fear of climate change, but also uh, investments in solar and wind and nuclear and and all of the above strategy, which frankly was very similar to what Barack Obama was uh, his administration proposed. And so, you know. I am a supporter of the gas and oil industry, and I'm not someone who says, you know, I want to do it somewhere else and not in my backyard. Uh, you know, we're in a very tourism-oriented economy here in Myrtle Beach, but, uh, you know, this was an opportunity for the neighboring city, Georgetown County, uh, in the city of Georgetown, to have an industry that was going to diversify their economy and revive their port. A lot has changed since 2014. I still believe that we need to be energy independent, which means you invest in gas and oil, along with big investments in all the other uh, energy, you know, possibilities that are out there. And there, let me tell you, there's been huge strides in uh, electric cars. They're they're stunning how how well they're doing. They still have some transportation issues. On a, on a bigger scale, on the trucks side of it, and of course, airplanes. But uh, you're seeing a big change uh, that you could see us moving from the fossil fuels to the alternative fuels faster than I even could have imagined in 2014. But I still believe you need to be able to be prepared for that and you need to know what you have. And there was a big argument about seismic testing. And, uh, and in my book, I have a whole chapter on that. And I talk about you know that there were the Marine Mammal Protection Act passed by Richard Nixon did a lot to protect those animals. If you were doing seismic testing, uh, though uh, there's not very much proof. You know you'll hear the environmentalists say it makes mammals go deaf. There's not a lot of proof of that I, I, that I know of. But you know there were protections there, and they were done by President Richard Nixon to to protect animals. And, uh, you know, if it's natural gas, you're not going to be prone to a gargantuan oil spill like what happened in Alaska. Having said that, we got to move on to the Exxon Valdez. Uh, the oil industry's actual record is phenomenal when it comes to accidents and dealing with oil spills and the rest of it. Uh, they get 99.9% of their product to market with no problems. They have a lot of safeguards, a lot of which were created by President Bush, who was an oil man himself, as president in reaction to the Exxon Valdez disaster that happened there. And then there's been more things done because of the other big disaster that happened in the Gulf many, many years later uh, with the BP uh, oil spill with the offshore drilling rig that had their issue. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, with the oil business, when a disaster happens, it's usually pretty enormous. And those risks are there, but you do still have to weigh those risks with national security and the ability to be energy independent. And, you know, we're moving away from these uh, these fuel sources that are uh, prone to this, and that's a good thing, and I support that, but I also believe that you got to have your base in line and you got to be able to work with what you have, and, and so I still support 
the, our, our fossil fuel industry as a component of our bigger energy uh, plan and ability to be self-sustaining um, and, and not need to be dependent on countries who hate us around the world. And, you know, because of technology with fracking and everything else, you know, we've gone from, you know, we're, we're still close to energy independent, but, you know, we're now one of the biggest exporters of, of, of energy around the world. And that's a good thing. So let's get back to the Exxon Valdez. And here's sort of a synopsis from NBC News of what happened. This should have been the easiest spill in the world to clean up. It's not only the worst oil spill in U.S. history, it's by far the largest in such a remote, pristine area. The tanker, the Exxon Valdez, had just loaded more than a million barrels of Alaskan crude. It was about 25 miles from the Valdez terminal and was apparently trying to dodge ice flows from the nearby Columbia Glacier when it ran aground. I want to assure everyone that Exxon is mobilizing all available resources to mitigate the impact from this incident. Exxon has assumed full financial responsibility for the incident. Exxon has come under heavy criticism for not moving more rapidly to clean up the spill. The crews have not arrived yet to begin cleaning the slime off the island's beaches and rocks. That probably won't happen until next week. Exxon says it cannot do the job in a hasty, haphazard manner. And there's no doubt uh, this is a major tragedy, tragedy, both for the environment and for the people up there. Day 10 of the oil spill crisis and the cleanup effort still just beginning. A few crews are on a few beaches removing a little bit of oil. But there are hundreds of miles of affected coastline. Exxon, which is running the operation, is coming under heavy criticism from state and federal officials. Where the existing management structure of this cleanup is not adequate to the task, then we're going to do it ourselves, independent of that. State officials in Alaska have made an accounting of what's happened to the spill, now covering an area of over 3,000 square miles. Exxon has had problems not only with its recovery efforts, but also with the continued leakage of oil from its crippled tanker. Officials say a small amount of oil still seeps from the holes in the ship, and containment booms around the vessel are not stopping it completely. This is one of the many small armies Exxon has mobilized to wipe up oil-soaked beaches stone by stone. Jay Hare, president of the National Wildlife Federation, watched the work for a while and then just muttered. I appreciate these folks doing this, but quite frankly, I don't see that it's doing a hell of a lot of good. Hare calls this futile, and he says oil rubbed into the rocks will take longer to evaporate. He intends to push for a new national energy policy, hoping that a national sense of outrage will add to his political muscle. After the Exxon Valdez ran aground, Exxon spent $3.8 billion on cleanup. But the crews only scratched the surface. If you just let the water stand for even just a minute, then the oil blobs will start to show. Still there 21 years after the spill. Well, I have a statement and then be glad to take a few questions and then refer them to our experts here. But virtually every American is familiar with the tragic environmental disaster in Alaskan waters. 
and more than 10 million gallons of oil have been spilled with deadly results for wildlife and hardship for local citizens. We all share the sorrow and concern of Alaskans and a determination to mount a sustained cleanup effort. Our ultimate goal must be the complete restoration of the ecology and the economy of Prince William Sound, including all of its fish, marine mammals, birds, and other wildlife. The Exxon Corporation has acknowledged responsibility for this spill and its liability for the damages. Exxon should remain responsible for both damages and for employing civilian personnel necessary to control further damage. However, uh, Exxon's efforts, standing alone, are not enough. And after consulting with the congressional delegation, Senator Ted Stevens, Senator Frank Murkowski, uh, Congressman Don Young, I have determined to add additional federal resources to the cleanup effort, in addition to the considerable federal personnel and equipment already on the scene. And this new effort will focus on the job of helping recover oil now in the water and restoring beaches and other damaged areas. This effort should not in any way relieve Exxon from any of its responsibilities uh, or its liabilities. I've asked uh, Sam Skinner, our Secretary of Transportation, to serve as the coordinator of the efforts of all federal agencies involved in the cleanup and to work with the uh, Alaskan authorities and Exxon. Uh, Admiral Paul Yost, uh, the Commandant of the Coast Guard, will return to Alaska to assume, assume the personal oversight of developments. As we all know, the Coast Guard has many assets uh, in place right now. Also at my direction, uh, Defense Secretary Dick Cheney will make available U.S. Armed Forces personnel and equipment to assist in the cleanup. The military will provide personnel for direct cleanup activities, as well as assisting with logistics, the needs of logistics uh, related to the cleanup. And of course, these efforts must be undertaken carefully so that further damage to fragile areas will not occur. Intensive planning now going on, as well as appropriate cleanup training, will be completed before ground units are actually deployed. In addition to the Department of Defense personnel, uh, I've asked my staff to develop plans to enable volunteers to, particip to participate in cleanup activities. By summer, we hope to have developed facilities to enable us to accommodate a corps of Alaskan volunteers. And when I say develop facilities, as these gentlemen will tell you, uh, we're dealing with very remote areas in some cases here. I've asked EPA Administrator Bill Riley uh, to uh, coordinate the long-range planning to restore the environment of the sound. EPA will draw on the expert of leading scientists and oil spill experts in this work, and it will also consult with other federal agencies that are assessing scientific data regarding the effects of the spill. We'll not forget the residents of Alaska who have suffered extraordinary economic loss. And when you talk to these congressmen, as I have, and get it brought home on case-by-case -case basis, we have to be concerned, and we are concerned. In addition to paying damage claims against it, we encourage Exxon uh, to increase its local hiring for the cleanup efforts. 
Uh, Secretary Skinner will also work with Exxon and appropriate agencies to develop appropriate loan assistance programs to assist those who have suffered economic injury. This situation has demonstrated the inadequacy of, of uh, existing contingency plans. And consequently, I have directed a nationwide review of contingency plans of this type to determine improvements that may be necessary. In describing these measures, we should not be under any illusions. Uh, the job of cleaning up the oil uh, from both the sea and the affected land areas will be massive, prolonged, and frustrating. Nothing we can do will totally resolve this problem in the short term. Rather, we must be prepared for a long, sustained effort. Uh, learning from this experience, we also uh, rededicate ourselves to transportation safety and to realistic planning for accidents that do occur. At the same time, our national security interest in the domestic energy supplies should not be forgotten. The excellent safety record that was recorded prior to this uh, incident must be restored and maintained consistently uh, into the future. Secretary Skinner and Administrator Riley will make brief statements, and they, uh, Secretary Cheney and others, uh, will be available to answer questions. Uh, prior to that, let me just take a couple of questions, and then I want to keep the focus, if possible, on this. So, uh, fire away. Yeah. Oh, my protocol. Sorry about that. Thank you, Mr. President. Terry, I'll be if I could try another subject, how do you reconcile your efforts to arrange third country military aid for the Contras with the spirit of the ban by Congress on aid to the rebels? Look, I'm not going to comment on any aspect of the North trial while it's in progress. If I even commented on your question, uh, it could prejudice the trial. It's going to be, that would be totally unfair. And I would note that of all the material that you seem to be referring to and has been introduced, all the material that was introduced yesterday, material you're referring to, has been available to the Independent Council and the Iran-Contra Committee and has been reviewed for, by them for any uh, special significance. So I believe the legal process ought to run unfettered without you or me endangering the trial process that's going on right now. And that's the last question I'll take on that subject. Yes, right here, and then to Frank. We have a reply to Mr. Bovich's contention. This is an environmental briefing here, and we're concerned about the Alaska oil spill. But the answer is no. Let me simply say we're the United States of America. We're making a prudent review, and I will be ready to discuss that with the Soviets when we are ready. And so, uh, and Mr. Gorbachev knows that there's no foot dragging going on, so I'm not concerned in the least. Now we go. Okay. A number of uh, local officials in Alaska as well as Alaskan residents have been complaining virtually since this still took place for a greater federal role. I guess my question would be, why has it taken so long to reach this conclusion, and hasn't valuable time been lost during your deliberations? Well, as you may recall, action started immediately. Uh, the big thing was to get the ship, uh, stop the hemorrhaging, and get that ship moved. Uh, I immediately asked the head of the Coast Guard, the head of the Department of Transportation, 
and Bill Riley to go up there. They came back and, and upon sound advice, uh, recommended that we not federalize. And let me be clear, we are not federalizing this operation. Uh, there is no demand from reasonable people to federalize this operation, and that is not going to be done. So what have we done? The flow was stopped. And let me be very clear, I give great credit, certainly in some of those that are working out there, volunteers, private side, local citizens, company and everything else for stopping. But I also give great credit to the Coast Guard and to military assets that have already been used in moving equipment thousands of miles to get this, get this, uh, stop the flow. And I'll tell you, uh, a lot has been done. Uh, I've had a talk here with Bill Riley about protecting the hatcheries, and I don't want to make premature judgments on this, uh, but it looks like uh, the five hatcheries uh, may have been saved. And now there's, is that an overstatement? And uh, now the cleanup uh, phase comes, and it's the time when we can step up some activity. So something has gone on. I'm not about to defend the status quo. But there is no desire on our part to federalize. We're not going to do it. And I think it's fair to point this out. I think the priorities were right. Uh, there is four times as much oil in that ship as spilled out of that ship. And it was important to stop, to be guarantee, even in rough elements up there, that no more escape. And so some things have happened. It was prudent to contain that spill. And so the process is going forward. Yeah, Brett. Do you have a sense yet of how much this federal effort is going to cost? And will you try to recover from Exxon that amount? Uh, as I said, Exxon is liable, and they will continue to be liable, and we don't at this point have a, a full assessment. Leslie? Can you take to court on that, sir? Sir? Does that mean follow up? You can take them to court? I think Exxon has assumed liability, and I'm not going to stand here and suggest otherwise. Uh, Mr. Gorbachev uh, today made another arms control gesture saying that he'll stop production of uh, weapons-grade uranium and shut down two plutonium plants. What's your response, a reaction? I've given you my response. We'll be ready to react when we feel like reacting and when we have prudently made our, our reviews upon which to act. So. What do you think of his proposal or his offer? Is this uh, a big step forward? I haven't, I haven't seen it analyzed, Leslie, so I honestly can't tell you that I know the full significant job. I know you don't want to talk about it, but Senator Muskie, former Senator Muskie, who is a member of the Tower Commission, says he was not aware of this effort to involve the Hondurans or of your role. You have said this was available to the, uh, the Tower Commission. Want to reply to that without prejudicing Oliver North? No. Because I don't want to prejudice the trial, John. It would be imprudent for us to do that, and we're not going to do it. And uh, I stand by my statement about the Iran-Contra committee. That's it. The conventional wisdom is that an American president never has much to gain by getting personally involved in the Middle East. But um, I was thinking that maybe that you were an exception given your um, initial round this week. Can you tell us what's in your mind about the Middle East if you see yourself getting very personally involved over the course of your presidency and trying to solve this? Look, if I, help, if I felt that being immersed in it would help solve the problem of peace in the Middle East, I would do that. 
And I think you're right. There have been times when it, it appears that the president shouldn't be fully involved. But we've had two visits here now this week. Uh, president Mubarak, uh, Prime Minister Shamir, uh, will have a visit, forthcoming visit from King Hussein. And I'm going to give the same assurances to him I've given to uh, Mubarak and Shamir, and that is that if I personally can be helpful, I want to do it. And in the meantime, why, uh, I will say that uh, I can't say I'm elated, but uh, in the Middle East, a little step sometimes can be proved to be fruitful. And I hope that, uh, I think the climate is better than it's been in a while. But um, I would simply say it is not a time where a lot of high visibility missions on the part of the president can can accommodate and can can be helpful in the process. But I want to leave that I want to leave you with the view that that it is of deep concern to us, uh, particularly the violence in the in the uh, West Bank. And so, uh, and I think both leaders that I've talked to so far know my personal feelings on this, and uh, we're, we're, we're uh, not despairing. In fact, I hope the two visits have moved things forward a little bit. So, Do your statements today mean that you won't discuss this country Yeah, it means I've said all I want to say about it. Look, we're having a briefing on Alaska, and with all respect, did I cut you off? Come on, Saul. <laughs> It means I said all I want to say about it, because I really believe on the advice of lawyers that that's the last thing we ought to do is even be kicking it around to this end. So please accept it when I said I don't want to talk about it anymore, and I'm not going to. So uh, nice try. <laughs> no, I just, just just let it stand. Go back and interpret what I said. Yeah. Do you believe the PLO should have a role in those independent elections in, in Israel? I think that the answer is to get on with the elections, and uh, uh, I, I'd like to, we haven't fully resolved exactly who's going to have a role, but uh, I think that's a matter to be determined by the, between the parties, but uh, uh, I'd leave it right there. I'd leave it right there. The PLO uh, has people living on the, on the uh, West Bank, as you know, and uh, we want to see uh, elections that are free and fair there. Yeah, Dave. Mr. President, was your statement this week about Israel ending the occupation intended as sort of a diplomatic nudge to uh, Prime Minister Shamir? Uh, should we read something into that? I wouldn't read anything into it. Uh, I do not feel that the provisions of Security Council Resolution 242 and 338 have been fulfilled, uh, and I wanted to be clear to all the parties in the Middle East that that is my view. And uh, I will hold the party, as best the U.S. can, hold the parties to a full implementation of those resolutions. And so what I was signaling is, is that the um, territory that has been ceded for peace uh, is not the, uh, the end. It simply isn't. Yeah, Alan, and then Tom, and then we'll go up here. Mr. President, you've used words like deadly, tragic, and disastrous to describe this oil spill. During the campaign, you said you were an environmentalist. Have you had any opportunity to rethink your commitment to drilling in the Ar Arctic Wildlife Refuge as a result of this disaster? Yeah, I've had the opportunity. Decided, sir. No, I don't think that I don't think that you that you compromise the genuine national security interests of this country, and I don't think that you can predicate a sound national energy policy 
on an aberration uh, that seemed to have taken place in the in Prince William Sound. And my, if for those that do, I say, please let me follow logically. Are you suggesting, because of the alleged human error of a pilot of a ship in Prince William Sound, that we shut down all the offshore production in the Gulf of Mexico? Is that the suggestion? If so, I oppose it. And I think we've got to do what I said in this statement. Do everything humanly possible here and elsewhere, on land and on sea, to see that we have the soundest environmental uh, practice and uh, reserve in terms of putting out uh, fires or stemming the flow of oil that's, that's, that leaks out, gets away. But I am not going to suggest that because of this, uh, we should rethink a policy of, the, of trying to get this country less dependent on foreign oil. Yeah. Mr. President, you said earlier that you don't want to defend the status quo in Alaska. You sounded sometimes like you're defending Exxon. Are you satisfied with their performance since the show? No. Let these experts tell you. I'm not satisfied with anything about it when we have a risk to the, to the environment like this, because Ellen was telling you the correct, I, correctly. I feel very, very strongly about the damage to our environment there, to the fisheries, to the lives of people involved there, uh, and to all of that. So I'm not totally satisfied. Yeah, I'm going to take two more. We're, we're uh, taking too much time away from the people that are, that are uh, uh, really most thoroughly involved with this. Besides that, we're getting off Marlin's schedule. Thank you for your understanding. Let me make one more subject change, if I may, sir. You've said a couple of times your minimum wage offer is your last and best. Does that mean you feel that the, uh, the package being debated on the Hill, now the Democrats' package, is worse than, uh, than no bill at all, sir? Well, there are several packages being debated, but I've told you, I'm not, you know, in terms of the uh, increase... And the length of time for the training wage, we did something unusual. We fired our best shot and last shot and only shot first. And I'd like to take this opportunity to say what I heard several of our leaders saying yesterday after the meeting. I have no intention of budging one inch on this. And I got too much at stake uh, to change right now, and I'm not going to. And so that's what we've done, and I know it's an unusual procedure. The Secretary of Labor made her position very, very clear in this, and uh, there we are. Yeah. Can I ask one last question on this bill? You said that the uh, cleanup would be protracted. How long do you think it's going to take, number of years, and, and is there any real expectation this will ever be cleaned up? Well, I think, there's, I think we've got to hope that it is. Uh, I think... Santa Barbara, I would say, has been pretty well cleaned up. I'd say that the spill of the Amoco Cadiz, which was six times as big as this, uh, has been cleaned up. And so I'd, we've got to aspire to standards that make me be able to tell the people of Alaska and people that are concerned all over this country, yes, we can shoot for that standard, and we have history to, to point to. But I think what we do now... Uh, will determine how fast uh, we can say that it has been done. And uh, that's why we want to move as quickly as we got it. All right, last one in the middle. Owen, sorry, Tom. Can you tell me if you believe the uh, 
political agreement reached in Poland this week could be a model for political reforms throughout Eastern Europe? And can we anticipate another visit to either Poland or Eastern Europe by you this summer or this spring? The, no two Eastern European countries are the same. Uh, the striving for change in some, if not all, of these countries is the same. But I would say that the roundtable development there in Poland uh, is very positive, and uh, I would certainly commend the parties getting together there. I go back to when we were there not very many months ago, and many of you were with me on that trip. I think uh, the situation has moved so fast since that trip that I took a year or two ago uh, that it's mind-boggling. And uh, to think that you'd see Jaruzelski uh, shaking hands with Lok Wałęsa, uh, we couldn't have predicted that a couple of years ago. Why? Because I was lectured very firmly about the Solidarność being, quote, outlawed, unquote. So things are moving. And uh, I think it's a sign of the change that democracy and democratization, if you will, and elections and parliaments and congresses and is on the move. And this is in, in recognition of a trade union's rights to bargain. Uh, this is all very encouraging. But what it means to the other Eastern European countries, uh, oh, and I simply can't tell you in terms of my own uh, uh, plans. We have not formulated any plans yet. Uh, I'd love to go back to Poland sometime. I'd love to go back there, but it, there's no such plan. I really do have to run, and uh, and I'll just turn this over now to uh, uh, Sam Skinner, and I know they'll and the congressman and senators. Ted, Thank you very much, Mr. President. Not at all. Well, good luck, and I Thank hope you we very can. Much, Mr. President. We want to help, and we care about what's happening up there in Alaska. Short, John. All right. I'm be real short. <laughs> well, we have already begun immediately to implement the president's program. Uh, we've met with the Department of Defense Resources. This is Randall Wallace, uh, your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, randallwallace.com. There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone could embrace, an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast, which was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast. And now, let's get back to the show.
welcome back. And, uh, you know, you listen to that press conference, it, it gives you a, a real sense of the, uh, of the depth of different things that you have to be on your toes to answer. Because here was a press conference to deal with this tragic situation in the uh, in Alaska, and here the president's getting questions about Eastern Europe, Europe, and the Soviet Union, and and the Middle East, all mixed in here between trying to talk about uh, his plans for and what he wanted to do to try to help these people in Alaska and help the the, the environmental situation in really this beautiful bay that is up there that has just now been fouled by this huge oil spill and uh it's you know it's it's it it, it does let you see just you know just how much the president has to be on his toes on all a vastly number of things uh whenever he's dealing with the press now as time moved on the ramifications of a, a, a spill of this enormity became more and more clear uh, and, and, you know, Exxon had to do a lot. I think they ended up spending a crazy amount of money, uh, to clean this up. And, 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 you know, as, as with anything like this or people who weren't satisfied with it, there was also the damage long-term done to the fishing there. And it, it just was a tragic situation. It did lead to safeguards, double holes in these oil tankers was one of them. Uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, the president put together a plan to try to, to make sure and prevent a situation like this happening. And, and one of the, you know, scary things about time, as time passes, you know, you, you really crack down on things for a long time and then things get loosened up. And that is sort of the argument that was made that led to the uh, oil spill later on in, in, by BP in the Gulf of Mexico, and which dumped and, and ruined the summer and ruined the tourism economy for parts of florida and the and the uh the gulf coast and uh and you know it's 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 a very difficult situation when you're dealing with a a disaster of this type and that's why you have to be on your toes all the time uh and and you know I, i will defend the oil and gas industry in that when you really look at it they get it right as close to 100 percent of the time as, as any industry in the world but you know when it's when it's not 100% right it could be 100% wrong and that's you have to weigh that and you have to stay diligent and and the government needs to stay diligent on making sure that the safeguards are there because you know we want to prevent these kind of disasters from ever happening uh, again uh one of the things that was kind of unfair that happened over the Exxon Valdez was concerning Captain Hazelwood and he was the captain of the ship, and uh, there was some accusations about drinking that he was acquitted on later. That he was negligent in some way. He, you know, he left the bridge, left a guy in charge. The accident happened. I think obviously when you when you what you're going to listen to are two stories in which he is intimately involved. One is that CNN took him back to a simulator, and they simulated what happened. And then uh, about ten years after the accident, sixty minutes did uh, a, a, a show over of an overview of everything that happened. And there's another documentary in here, and Mr. Hazelwood is in all of them. And, you know, you hear the regrets he, he has, but the fact is he left the bridge to go do paperwork in his cabin. He was not on the bridge when the accident actually happened, and when it did, he knew he was in trouble. He got back up there and took command. And the question of whether he had a drink or not, 
I think at the end of the day, when you listen to it, you realize how unfair it was. This was an accident, and this poor man, the captain of the ship, brew the brunt of it, and that is what happens. But uh, uh, it's an interesting look at 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 him and what happened and the impact of what happened on Alaska. And like I said, a lot of the improvements and safeguards that have guided the oil industry from that moment on came from the initiatives that President Bush's team put into place to make sure this kind of thing didn't happen again. And, you know, we've been very fortunate over those, over those you know, the, the three decades since. We asked Captain Hazelwood to walk us through the events of 25 years ago. She's coming up in speed. In a simulator at his alma mater, the State University of New York Maritime College. Take me back to that, to that moment. Back to a chain of events after the Exxon Valdez left port with Hazelwood's decision to change course. Hazelwood was worried about ice from the Columbia Glacier Large chunks had broken off and floated into the shipping lanes. Where would it have been on the uh, radar? It would have been coming out of here in this position here. What did you tell the Coast Guard at this point? So there's ice in the lanes. I request permission, the protocol, to cross over the separation zone. I'm going to alter my course to 200 once we're clear of the ice. We'll give you another shot over. And Coast Guard said, roger that. Yep, no problem. Two ships prior to me had done it. Although the Coast Guard was listening, it was not watching. Even though its radar could have tracked the ship, there was no requirement to look more than six miles out. Exxon Valdez was eight. So you didn't even know you were off the Coast Guard radar? I'm not sure where their range went to, but I assumed I was on it. I assumed they had that range. Captain Hazelwood then made a decision that would doom the ship. He turned the bridge over to the third mate with instructions to turn back into the shipping lane. I went down to my office. I had some paperwork to fill out and I wanted to look at the latest weather. The third mate called Hazelwood and said he was turning. But what happened next remains a mystery. The third mate and the helmsman at the wheel both say they followed orders. But whether it was miscommunication or poor navigation, the Exxon Valdez did not turn back into the shipping lane when it was supposed to. The turn was initiated. It was just initiated late. So late that the ship ran aground on Bly Reef. What do you think happened? I don't know. Sad to say I wasn't there. Ten years ago, the Exxon Valdez, a supertanker carrying 53 million gallons of crude oil, ran aground in the pristine waters of Alaska's Prince William Sound. It was the worst environmental disaster in United States history, killing more wildlife than any other previous catastrophe. On top of that, some 60,000 Alaskans, most involved in fishing, say the oil spill hurt their lives and livelihood. The disaster cost Exxon $3.5 billion much of which went towards a massive cleanup effort. And if you talk to Exxon officials these days, they'll tell you that Prince William Sound has recovered and that everyone hurt by the spill has been compensated. 
But if you go back to the Sound, as we did last month, and talk to the people who live there, you'll hear another story altogether. This is the beach at Sleepy Bay, about 65 miles downwind from where the Exxon Valdez ran aground. Take a look at all of this, and you get a sense of the pristine beauty that is Alaska. But turn over a rock on this beach, and you're likely to find oil. And government scientists say that that oil from the spill is as toxic today as it was 10 years ago. So that's the oil right that's there. That's the oil. That's leaking up from underneath, and that's, that's toxic stuff. So it's like a little, little land, toxic landmine. Bruce Wright heads a task force looking into the Exxon Valdez oil spill for the National Marine Fisheries Service, a federal agency. You sure this is Exxon Valdez oil? It's Exxon Valdez oil. There's no question about that. Wow. You see, that's all tarry oil. You can, you can smell that. Oh, yeah. No, you don't want to smell, smell it too much because it's real volatile still. And this whole expanse of beach is covered with this stuff. This isn't the only place you'll find it here? You'll find oil in lots of beaches in Prince William Sound. The oil we were shown at Sleepy Bay spilled into Prince William Sound March 24, 1989, just after midnight when the Exxon Valdez, a ship the size of three football fields, ran aground on a reef even though the reef was plainly marked on charts in the wheelhouse. Eventually, oil from the tanker's ruptured hull spread over 1,300 miles of Alaskan coastline. The death toll was staggering. A quarter of a million seabirds, 3,000 otters, hundreds of bald eagles. And despite Exxon's attempts to clean up the mess, government scientists say oil from the spill continues to take a toll on marine life in Prince William Sound. The fish on the left is a normal pink salmon, and the fish on the right is a pink salmon that's been exposed to low levels of, of Exxon Valdez oil. So that bulging is a result of, of the oil spill? That, that bulging is the result of, of exposure to oil, yes. Usually leads to death of the fish early on. And are, are there salmon that look like this in, in Prince William Sound today? You could go out and find salmon that look like this in the oil part of Prince William Sound. However, Exxon officials continue to insist that oil from the spill is not responsible for long-term damage to marine life in Prince William Sound. And they say that the vast majority of species were never affected by the spill or have fully recovered. But according to a government report released last month, 21 out of 23 species have yet to recover. And while government scientists say... They cannot prove it. Many local fishermen argue that the spill is to blame for the current shortage of certain fish in Prince William Sound. We used to have 275 boats that fished uh, in the fishery every year out in the Sound, and now you've got about 90 to 100 boats that participate. I mean, uh, half the fleet's gone bankrupt. These fishermen from Cordova, Alaska, say that lingering effects from the oil spill have caused a sharp decline in herring herring that were once abundant and provided a good living for Ross Mullins, who has fished in Prince William Sound for the last 35 years. When we're out here on the water, this really looks pretty nice. Yeah, it is. It's nice. I mean, it looks nice, but there's a big difference. And the fish that don't show up, how are you going to look out there and see, huh, those fish didn't show up, you know? 
And when you hear Exxon say that we've spent a couple billion dollars on this cleanup, they've spent the money. They came in here and they put thousands of people on the beach uh, cleaning up rocks and that sort of thing. But there's still oil out there. Sylvia Lang, who's been fishing commercially since she was a teenager, says the shortage of fish since the spill has caused the value of their state-issued fishing permits to plummet. A permit cost $300,000 in 1988 because you could probably gross that in 1988. It's worth $27,000 now because you're lucky if you get that now. And the depreciation and the value of that permit, you attribute directly to the oil spill. Without a doubt. These fishermen got hammered, and they're still getting hammered. Brian O'Neill is the lead attorney representing the Cordova fishermen and tens of thousands of other Alaskans in a civil suit against Exxon and Captain Joseph Hazelwood, who was the skipper of the oil tanker when it ran aground. In 1994, a jury determined that both Exxon and Captain Hazelwood had acted recklessly. The general public, what I can see, perceives me as some drunken fool. After the spill, Hazelwood, who now works as a clerk in the Manhattan law firm that represents him, was accused of being intoxicated and not at the helm of the tanker when it ran aground. A simple question. Were you intoxicated that night? No. You did have some drinks before the ship left port, though? Yes. How, how much did you have to drink? Three drinks and possibly a sip of the fourth. Perhaps a fourth sip of what? Vodka. On the Vodka. Rocks. Your license to drive a car was suspended at the time yes, of the grounding. That was because of a drunk driving conviction? Yes, from six months prior to that. It, it seems a little incongruous that you can't drive a car at home, but mm -hmm. you could pilot a tanker. Well, the Coast Guard took no exception with it, and it was something that occurred in my personal life. It had nothing to do with my job. Hazelwood was acquitted in a 1990 criminal trial of having been intoxicated while piloting the Exxon Valdez. A blood test that initially indicated he was drunk turned out to have been mishandled. He insists the grounding of the supertanker was the result of a simple mistake. You're on the way. Okay, thank you. To see just what that mistake was, we took Captain Hazelwood to this simulator which is used to train ship captains. Programmed into the simulator was this view from the bridge of the Exxon Valdez 10 minutes before it ran aground. The tanker was heading for a reef marked by a blinking light on the horizon, which we highlighted. Hazelwood says he left the ship's third mate with instructions to make a right turn away from the reef when the tanker was abreast of what he says that night was a clearly visible landmark. So all you have to do is get even with that. This light here that's coming and up. And you make a right turn. Yep. The third mate, who was granted immunity from prosecution, admitted he failed to execute the right turn, which had been ordered. At the time, Captain Hazelwood was in his cabin doing paperwork. When did you realize something was wrong? The phone rang, and as I picked up the receiver, he said, I think we're in trouble. And at that moment, I felt a shudder, and I got sick to my stomach. Physically sick? Physically sick. Because you knew... Well, I don't know if it was panic or terror. I knew something was dreadfully wrong then. And when could you actually see that something was dreadfully wrong? Well, as I walked out and came over and I could see the oil boiling up to the surface of the water. Do you personally think that you, you made any mistakes that night? 
Well, in retrospect, in hindsight being 2020, of course, I never would have left the bridge if I had any idea that what was going to happen. If you had remained on the bridge that night, do you think yes. the ship would have run aground? I don't think so. I, uh, I can't perceive me missing that turn. Captain Hazelwood will be heading back to Alaska this summer to begin a thousand hours of court-ordered community service. His assignment is to pick up trash from state highways and parks. As for Exxon, the jury that found the company had acted recklessly ordered it to pay $5 billion in punitive damages to the fishermen and others who say they were hurt by the spill. It's been five years since you won that judgment. How much of the $5 billion has Exxon paid? None of it. Nothing? Uh, not a cent. Why? They uh, have uh, spent most of the last uh, five years filing motion after motion uh, to get the judgment overturned. In all, Exxon filed more than 25 motions, prompting the federal judge overseeing the trial to express concern that the company will devise any possible procedural roadblock to defer payment of the judgment. The judge also expressed disappointment with Exxon's legal tactics, writing at one point, Exxon has acted as a Jekyll and Hyde, behaving laudably in public and deplorably in private. Exxon is appealing the case to a higher court. The judgment earns interest at about 6%, and Exxon makes about 18% on money that it invests. So by not paying, Exxon makes money. In fact, it makes so much money that by not paying uh, the interest in about six and a half years will pay the judgment. How do you respond to those who say that you and your clients are going after Exxon because they are such a wealthy company? My clients and I sued Exxon because Exxon promised it would safely uh, transit Prince William Sound with oil, and Exxon made a fortune off of that oil, and Exxon didn't live up to its responsibilities and spill that oil and ruined an awful lot of people's lives. Although oil from the Exxon Valdez never actually reached Cordova, people who live here say it was a disaster that devastated this little town. Before the spill, Cordova had been among the top 10 fishing ports in the United States. Five years later, it had dropped to number 60. And social scientists who came here after the spill found significantly higher rates of alcohol abuse and depression. A former mayor committed suicide, leaving behind a note that blamed in part stress caused by the spill. Everything has uh, taken a, an impact from that 1989 spill. You still feel it? Oh, yeah. yeah. Jack Hopkins says in 1989, Exxon pledged to make fishermen whole. The company did distribute $25 million in Cordova that year. But he says the $60,000 he got has been nowhere near enough to cover his business losses and make him whole. I think what I am is in the hole. You know, I'm having a hard time uh, making boat payments. and. But isn't fishing cyclical? I mean, don't you have down years and up oh, years? Oh, yeah, you do. But cycles are one thing. Total failures are another. And in these years of failures, you had southeast Alaska booming, biggest runs in history. You had uh, to the west, uh, you had strong runs. And here we had uh, failures. Exxon told us, and I'm quoting, those directly impacted by the spill were immediately and fully compensated. That's total BS. I mean, that's bogus. Exxon declined our requests for an on-camera interview, but the company did send us this letter, which says in part, the oil spill was a tragic accident, which we deeply regret. 
We are appealing the $5 billion punitive damage verdict because we believe it is unjust and excessive. They see themselves as a company that's already spent $3.5 billion on the oil spill. Why is there need for more punishment, more money? When you and I do something that the law says we must be punished for it, it's got to hurt. And they're not hurting. Their stock has tripled since 1989. Um, Where is the hurt? Here's the hurt. The hurt is here in this little community that has lost its sense of future. We have the hurt. I don't see where Exxon has the hurt. The year 1989 began as a time of hope and promise. The town of Valdez, located in Prince William Sound and moderated by proximity to ocean waters, escaped the record low temperatures experienced by much of Alaska. Although it had received 220 inches of snowfall in December and January alone, over two feet of snow remained on the ground on the first day of spring, but the temperature was a relatively mild 43 degrees. Dan Lawn lived in Valdez, where he worked for the Alaska Department of Environmental Conservation. Lawn's job was to inspect facility and shipping operations at the terminus of the 800-mile Trans-Alaska Pipeline for the state of Alaska. As far back as 1984, Lawn had observed and reported a troubling pattern of lax oversight and preparedness at the terminal. Among his concerns, the ability to respond to a large oil spill. In the early morning hours of Good Friday, March 24, 1989, U.S. Coast Guard vessel traffic controllers in Valdez received a radio call. Yeah, uh, it's Valdez back. Uh, we uh, should be on the radar there. We've fetched up uh, hard ground north of uh, Goose Island off Boy Reef. approaching the Exxon Valdez. Dan Lawn was among the first to be notified that the tanker Exxon Valdez had grounded on Bly Reef. At the time I got notification of the oil spill, I'd been asleep for two or three hours. And uh, I got a call from the Valdez Marine Terminal that the ship, the Exxon Valdez, had run aground in at, at Bly Reef and was leaking some oil. He rowed a pilot boat out to investigate the scene and recorded the first photos and video of the stricken tanker. Arriving on the bridge of the tanker, only a few hours after Captain Joseph Hazelwood's radio call to the Coast Guard Vessel Traffic Control Center, Dan Lawn documented the initial attempts to calculate how much oil had been lost to that point. The result, in a little less than four hours, over 6,700,000 gallons had been spilled. You can see it leaking there by five, uh, five port. The rate of loss from the ship was nearly 500 gallons of crude oil per second. Eight of 11 cargo tanks and two ballast water tanks had been torn open. Ultimately, the Exxon Valdez would leak 11.2 million gallons into the waters of Prince William Sound. While Dan Lawn and the Coast Guard scrambled to assemble and coordinate resources in Valdez, word of the accident spread across the state and throughout the lower 48. 
In Seattle, the Hazardous Materials Response Branch of NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, was notified early that first morning by the Coast Guard. This group known as NOAA HAZMAT was created in the 1970s to provide scientific support and guidance during spills of oil and chemicals in the marine environment. Once characterized in a Seattle newspaper as eco-cowboys, NOAA HAZMAT had established a reputation for rapid scientific response to environmental disasters. Following a frenetic morning of mobilization, the first wave of NOAA HAZMAT responders departed for Alaska. By 7 p.m. March 24th, the first day of the spill, they were on the ground in Valdez and attending a press briefing with the Coast Guard and other response agencies. Over the next few weeks, NOAA HAZMAT provided critical support for the response, detailing where the oil was and using computer models to predict where it would go. On the ground, NOAA team members helped to document initial oiling conditions on the beaches of Prince William Sound as resources were mobilized for what would become the largest oil spill cleanup in history. Just as the scale of the spill and response was unprecedented, so too were the challenges. Prince William Sound was remote and considered to be both a pristine and robust ecosystem that also supported important fisheries. Devising and implementing plans for cleaning oil from contaminated shorelines became complex negotiations among competing and often adversarial interests. The role of NOAA HAZMAT scientist was to provide a neutral technical basis for the hard choices involved in the cleanup. Inevitably, their advice was not always embraced with open arms. As the weeks and months wore on in 1989, the oil on the shoreline weathered and became increasingly difficult to clean up. As a result, more aggressive techniques were developed and deployed. The use of high-pressure hot water to blast oil from the shoreline became more common. David Ken Dr. Jacqueline Michelle was a key part of the NOAA science team working in Alaska. Trained as a geomorphologist specializing in coastal processes and the behavior of oil on different shorelines, she had studied scores of oil spills worldwide by the time the Exxon Valdez grounding had occurred. But even with this background of experience, she was surprised by the scale of this spill and the disarray of the initial response. It was total chaos, you know, as always is the case. Um, you know, people were just trying to get set up in space. Uh, you know, we're just even something like power for computers or uh, desktop space for um, laying maps out or, or phone. I think you know, we, we felt lucky we got one phone so we could communicate with the outside world. So it was, it was a lot of chaos, but you know, a lot of folks came who had been doing spill response for a while, and so we just started around doing our job. But essentially, you know, there was so much oil, um, you know, the focus was on, on water recovery, and then we started gearing up for shoreline cleanup decision making. Because of her expertise in oil spill fate and effects, Michelle dealt with many of the complex scientific issues that arose. For example, some working on the response felt that seasonal storms at the end of the first year would remove much of the oil from the beaches. So Jackie Michelle monitored shoreline conditions through the winter. Dave Kennedy's concern about the effects of aggressive shoreline cleanup and Jackie Michelle's finding that oil had persisted on the beaches after the first winter led to a more comprehensive NOAA program 
to document the physical and biological consequences of both oil and cleanup. The monitoring revealed that most plants and animals on oiled beaches, such as seaweeds, barnacles, and snails, recovered after around four years. But ongoing studies have shown that pockets of oil remain on some beaches, persisting far longer than many had expected. Continuing research aims to determine just how harmful this old oil might prove to be. NOAA Hazmat used the results of its studies to improve the guidance it provides during oil spill responses. In addition, the rare opportunity to study an area affected by an oil spill over many years has contributed to our understanding of how a complex ecosystem like Prince William Sound's responds to disturbance, especially in the face of other large-scale changes in the marine environment caused by climate change, sea level rise, ocean acidification, and cataclysmic events like tsunamis and hurricanes. Twenty years later, the Exxon Valdez spill still means different things to different people, and it endures as a source of controversy, even as it recedes into history. There's still oil in Prince William Sound 20 years later, and in some places quite a bit. It just happened to be the Exxon Valdez. It just happened to be Exxon's ship. It could have been Arcos, it could have been BP's, it could have been anybody's ship. The reason the spill occurred is the system had deteriorated to the point where oversight was lax. There's a lot of uh, you know, interest in sort of revisiting, you know, 20 years later, what have we learned? What still needs to be done, if anything? I'm starting to see that we're falling back into this complacency that was existed before the oil spill. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. 
If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now.